it's so great to be here, um, and I know that it is unprecedented. I know that people probably hate that word now, but this is probably the first time that we've ever had to have masks. Well, not probably. It's the first time I've ever been in a, a church setting where people need to wear masks. And we have just started February, and it feels like May, I reckon. Maybe about May. So we, we are in special days, but I'm glad that you made the effort to be here today at the start of a new series. We're calling it How to Live with Humans over the next three weeks. We're going to be covering six principles for living with humans. And then on the fourth week, we're going to do something very different, unprecedented once again. Uh, we're calling it Circle Sunday. And why we're calling it Circle Sunday is the next three weeks, every week I'm going to be covering two principles uh, for us to live with other people. This can be all kinds of different relationships, uh, marital relationships, uh, friendships, um, siblings, parent, child, relate. all of these all come under these principles. And as I have discovered as I've been uh, preparing this Sunday, just even describing the principles does not give me time to talk about much of the application. <laughs> so you're going to get the principle. You're going to have to work out the application. You have to actually learn how to live with humans uh, in your context using these principles. But what we wanted to do is on the fourth Sunday of this series, instead of sitting in rows, we are going to be sitting in circles. Uh, we're not quite sure exactly how it looks like yet. We're still working out the practicals. Uh, but this will be done through our live groups. If people are not part of live groups, you can still join one of the circles so that we can talk through the application of these principles. You can bring up your questions. You can talk about some of these stuff in these circles because Beck and I are not experts on relationships. In fact, I think all of us would probably be on a similar footing when it comes to living with humans. We are all learners. And yet at the same time, we all have a certain level of wisdom that we can share with each other. And what better way to learn how to live with humans than to actually have to sit in a circle with other humans, isn't it? You know, you actually get to learn. And so over the next few weeks, um, as, as I'm sharing these principles, please send through your questions. There's a screen coming up with the phone number. And you can text through your questions to that number. You might want to save the number right now. And, and you can put specifically, oh, I really love that principle or I really don't like that principle, <laughs> depending which way it goes. How does it work for this? How does it work for that? What do you have to say about this? We'll collate these questions. We might answer some of these from the front if we feel like that's something that would be good to do. Uh, but what we're going to do is that we'll bring them together so that in circles we can discuss these questions in week four. Right? So uh, this number will be active for the next few weeks. It's always active, actually, is our church phone number. And you can send through your questions. It's anonymous. We don't save your numbers on that particular phone. And, um, and, and so we want to be able to then talk about the application week four uh, during Circle Sunday. This is brand new to us. We know that some people probably don't like the idea of sitting in a circle and being known. And I understand that there is a certain anxiety about vulnerability and openness. You might not really know the people in this church that well. I get it. But you know what? Vulnerability doesn't happen because you feel like it. Vulnerability happens because you learn to open up. And hopefully with the principles that we share over the next few weeks, you'll learn how to practice vulnerability that is not 
No, I don't think it's one of the principles we're talking about, but it kind of flows through them. And, um, and at the same time, we're not going to force you to share. You can still sit in one of these circles. You can learn from each other. It's going to be a fantastic experience, I believe. And if it's not, we'll never do it again, and that's fine. Is, um, but we like to experiment uh, at Lyft. We, wanna, we want to... You know what, I would hate for you guys to have a head knowledge but not be able to practice what we've been learning. And, and that goes for every series, but in particular this series, I think it's so important because learning to live with humans is not something that would be nice. It's actually something that is so essential. We have been designed specifically to live in relationship. As I've been preparing, I've been, I'm doing a research paper this year as part of my studies, and, and one of the researchers um, that I read up had this really interesting thought. Do you know that if you are in uh, an, uh, a close friendship, a close supportive environment, you grow better than when you're not? You are actually stifled in your growth when you don't know how to share the experiences that you're going through, the lessons that you are learning. Simply by having someone else just listen to you talk, ramble about what you're learning, makes the learning more concrete in your mind. How powerful is that? Shouldn't churches be some of the best places where you have supportive people that you can get around and say, hey, you know what? I know it sounds crazy, but I just learned that God loves me this morning. That's cool. You're building something in your mind and you're renewing your mind. You are growing. That is what churches are meant to be for. These communities It's not supposed to be about the gathering or the service or whatever you call it. But for us, we call it a gathering. It's not just coming together on a Sunday morning. It is actually about growing and learning together. Isn't it true? Awesome. All right, I do need to get into stuff today. Today, we're going to be covering the two foundational um, principles, everything else, the rest of this series uh, really comes back to these. And so please try to take as many notes as you can or listen to the podcast again. We'll have it on this afternoon. But we're going to talk about love and mutual submission. And when you think about how to live with humans and in a Christian context, of course, one of the principles is love, right? Yes, you have masks. It does not rob you of your voice, okay? You can still talk back at me, talk to me, with me. And love sounds like a really kind of like brainless, of course we need love. Um, but do you know that English is, English doesn't help us love. Because in English, we, we, we only have one word for love. And we love our spouse, we love our kid, we love our pet. We love morning tea, we love food, we love cars, we love AFL, we, we love walks along the beach, we love napping at home, we, we love all of these things. And how is it that we can have the same content, the same quality in this love for all of these different things? Well, in English, we don't really express it that well. But in the Greek, there are seven different words that describe love. And I'm going to run through these with you this morning. I'm going to try to do this quickly because it's not the main point yet. Uh, but the first of these is eros. The word eros is where we get the word erotic from. We often think about it as sexual, as passionate. But um, don't go to that one yet. 
No, just leave it on a list. We'll come back to that later. Thank you. Uh, and we think about it as this passionate sexual kind of a love. Uh, and that is a part of it, but eros more generally describes romantic love. It describes the love between two people. If you will, one of the best ways to describe this is the love that people, uh, two people have exclusively that is face-to-face. Okay, so it is this exclusive, passionate at times, sexual at times, but always face-to-face kind of a love. It is, it is shared and, and is a beautiful thing. Uh, Hollywood loves this. Disney loves this. We, they talk about Eros all the time in different ways. But there we go. That's the first one. The second one uh, uh, in that list is, is, it looks like Storge, but it's pronounced Store-J. Store-J. Say with me, Store-J. If you know that the popular music shop store DJ, just take out a D, store J. And store J talks about familial love, the love in a family. Specifically, it was used to describe the love that the mother has for a child. It is this caring, is this giving, is this I want your best, I want to nurture you, I want to see you grow kind of a love. Uh, it, it is also somewhat... Um, well, a child can't really give you anything back. So when you store Jay someone else, you want their best and you want to give them the best, but there is possibly this understanding that you're not going to be able to give back. That is a part of store Jay. Another way that people talk about store Jay is that you get so familiar with one another that you are so comfortable and you just want to be in that space with people that you're comfortable with, uh, you, you put your guard down, you're relaxed, and you really care, and you become a bit of a family. That's what Storge uh, describes. And then the third one on the list is philia, and philia is a friendship kind of a love. It is, uh, uh, sometimes it's described as shared goodwill. Uh, I have goodwill towards you, you have goodwill towards me. There's this kinship, there's this us-ship. And you know how I talked about Eros being face-to-face? Philia is more side-by-side. You are sharing life together and you are doing life together. That's what Philia is all about. It is walking alongside people that want to walk alongside you. That's a, a good way to talk about it. And then we have agape. Agape is often translated charity or altruism. It is about this uh, self-sacrificial love um, uh, that you give for the good of someone else. Uh, and that's why they call it charity. Altruism is more of the sociological, psychological word that is often used. And, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. And then number five, we have this word ludus. It is a playful or un committed kind of love. is a casual love. Um, people think about fooling around, flirting, that kind of stuff. That is ludus, okay? Maybe that's where they came up the word ludicrous, but there you go. That's the Greek. And then number six is pragma. Pragma is a pragmatic kind of love. It is where reason, duty uh, drives this relationship. And so uh, a good way to think about this is an arranged marriage. This arranged marriage took place because um, reason, duty uh, comes in. There's this mutual benefit for us to be in this marriage. Uh, and so that's kind of how it works. There might not be a lot of feeling. There might not be a lot of passion. It is all about reason and duty. 
And so that's pragma. And finally, number seven is the word, I do not know how to say this, but I'm going to call it philousia or philousia. Anyone want to try? Any Greek-speaking people? Philousia. Philousia. It is not a name that you give your daughter. Please try to stay away from it. The word means self-love. And it's actually a really popular kind of a term, I guess, nowadays, is the love a person has for themselves. Psychologists put forward that we all need a level of philosophy because uh, without self-esteem, we don't really get anything done in our lives. We kind of feel as though we are really lousy, worthless people, and so we need a level of philosophy. So with low philosophy, people end up with conditions like depression, uh, isolation, anxiety, whereas at the same time, if, there's, if a person has too much uh, philosophy, it becomes hubris, prideful, narcissistic kind of a, a, a condition, I guess, where, where we look at ourselves more than uh, we maybe ought to. And so that's seven kinds of love that the Greek language has described. Now, I want you to think about these seven words, and I want you to think about this fact that the Bible only talks about, in some way or form, four of these seven types of love. Ah, that's just too good. She gave you the answer already. So as you can see, And why I'm doing it this way is because I want you to understand that, yes, the world actually puts forward that these other things are love and these are ways of loving. But the way that the Bible describes love does not include ludus, which is uh, um, casual love. It does not describe pragma. And maybe for some people it's surprising, but the Bible does not talk about self-love. The Bible only includes eros, storge, philia, and agape. And I want to jump deeper into these four uh, concepts of love because the Bible describes them and they are the ways that we are meant to live out love, express love, um, and and choose love in the life that we are living. You ready to go? All right, number one, eros. Now, interestingly, the word eros does not actually appear in the Bible. But the concept of eros is very much present in the Bible. Um, if, if you have read the Bible, there is one, I would maybe describe it as M-rated book. Possibly some people might give it a higher rating, but it's called the Song of Songs. Some people call it the Song of Solomon. And it describes this really passionate love that these two people have towards each other. And, and they're longing for each other day and night. And, and why does the Bible include it? Because Eros is a kind of love that God wants us to have. Or it describes as something that we can practice in this world. But the, the problem, the, not a problem, but the way that the Bible describes it uh, very much is in the sanctity of marriage. So in 1 Corinthians 7 verses 8 to 9, this is what it says, Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, this is Paul writing, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Now why Paul said that is because Paul loves God so much and is so driven by his call to the kingdom that he's like, when you get married, you're going to think about your spouse, 
all the time and God's going to have lesser of your attention and energy. So if you can stay unmarried and do the work of the kingdom, please do so. That's what Paul is saying. But then he goes on to say, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I think that Paul has a very simplistic understanding of marriage. If you cannot control yourself, get married. Sure, thanks, Paul. Um, but anyway, the, the understanding behind this is that, yes, it is very natural for us to desire eros. It is a very important I wouldn't call it necessary, but the Bible does talk about it in the context of our human um, design includes an element of eros. And, um, and, and so Paul says, when you, want, when you have this passion, get married. The sanctity of marriage protects eros. In Hebrews 13 verse 4, it says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So eros is uh, allowed. Eros is beautiful. Eros is uh, encouraged within the boundaries of marriage. Okay? And so I want you to think about this because the Bible doesn't talk a lot about eros. It doesn't. It does not have a huge amount of detail or uh, structure to help us to understand Eros. But yet in our culture, Eros is seen as the highest form of love. Yeah. Every movie has an element of Eros. And if the movie does not lend itself to Eros, movie makers create a relationship for there to be eros because it's more exciting and is more human because they think that eros is the highest form of love but the bible describes it as something that is kept within the marriage is something that is beautiful is something that needs to be protected please see that you need to protect eros but it's not the highest form of love and as i describe the other three forms of love hopefully you'll see uh, the reason behind it so let's move on let's move on to storge now, storge is also a really interesting uh, Greek word for love because it does not actually appear in the Bible as well. But its opposite form is found in the Bible. So storge uh, talks about familial love, as I described. The word astorges, which is the antonym, if you want to get into the technical, is the opposite word. Astorges does appear in the Bible and it appears a couple of times. Let me read them to you. In Romans 1.31, Paul is describing people who are living without God, okay? They are not living in God's kingdom. They are not living under God's culture, principles, authority. They don't want God's presence. And Paul describes them as having no understanding, no fidelity, no love, and no mercy. The word there for no love is the word astorges. So when we are without God, we have no love, we have no astorges. It's not that we don't have no eros, it's not that we don't have no agape. Paul specifically says we have no astorges. 
kind of interesting, right? And he repeats this idea in 2 Timothy 3 verse 3, where again, Paul is describing people living in the last days without God, and he says that they are without love, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good. And the word without love is once again a storges. So while storge is not something that the Bible says you need to cultivate storge or this is how you live out storge, what Paul tells us is that without God, there is no storge. And therefore, storge is something that is really beautiful because it's something that with God, we will cultivate. Okay? I want you to hold that in mind because as I describe the next love, hopefully you will see a few more links and I also need to get through my notes. The next one is philia, and I do want to camp at philia for a little while. As I mentioned, eros gets all the notice in our world today. Philia does get a tiny little bit, but a lot less. And um, philia is something that is, I believe, is something that we need to learn to champion a lot more. Let me, just, uh, let me show this to you in the Bible. In Romans 12 verse 10, Paul says this, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. And this is a really interesting word because, uh, a phrase, uh, verse, because when Paul says be devoted, the word devoted is the word philostorges. It has philia and storge in it. And then he says be philostorges to one another in philia. Okay? This is Paul giving us a command on what we are to do. Hear this. We are talking about principles in the Word of God for how we live with humans. And Paul tells us, be philostorges to one another in philia. Paul didn't say, be philostorges to one another in eros. He doesn't say, be philostorges to one another in agape. And we're going to cover agape in a moment. He actually commands us to philostorges one another in philia. And what we need to realize is that in the church community, the love that we practice, and as human beings, as Christians, we need to practice philia. And we need to practice a philia that is somewhat attached to storge. Remember that familial, that caring kind of love. The devotion we have to one another comes because we understand both philia and storge. And that is why Paul is describing that without God, we have no storge. Because without God, we don't have that kind of care that is required to cultivate philia. Are you following my chain of thought? I know they were going quite deep into these words, but I want you to, maybe you need to listen to this uh, podcast again, because what we need to realize is that philia is a kind of love that we must practice, but we don't necessarily feel. We practice despite how we feel. We practice because of our devotion. We don't practice because of the passion. Remember Paul talked about when you have this passionate love, when you have this eros bubbling up inside of you, if you have this passion, go get married. He didn't say when you have it. He doesn't say uh, you must practice eros. 
But Paul says we must practice philia and we must be devoted to one another in philia. One theologian puts it this way, this kind of love is so overlooked. It's actually one of the most overlooked kind of a love because it is not a love that is born of feeling, it's a love that is born of devotion. And what this needs to look like necessarily is that we must cultivate philia. What does this mean? Let me give you an example. As I have spoken to a number of people over the years, one of the things that people sometimes say to me is that I don't feel that connected to the church community. I don't feel connected to the church community. I don't feel like anyone's really reaching out to me. I don't feel like anyone's really trying to understand me. I don't feel like I'm connected. I don't feel it. And I feel as though my workplace, my hobby groups, they have more philia towards me. I'm putting in the word philia there. People don't talk like that. But they say that there is this greater connection. People ask me how I'm going and they try to help me and they try to support me. And then I ask these people, it's like, okay, how much time do you spend with your workmates? Oh yeah, of course, five days a week. And then sometimes we hang out as well. How often do you spend time with your hobby groups? Oh, you know, I need to unwind after church and so, or not after work, and so I'm with them all the time. I'm chilling out with them. It's like, so how often do you reach out to people in the church community? Oh, we see each other every week. It's like, wait, you mean at church? So you mean when everyone is seated in rows, listening to Nate speak, having some awesome time of worship, and then you have 20 minutes where you have some morning tea and then you head off, and then you expect philia to be cultivated in such a context. Why do you think you got more philia with people that you actually do life with? You are walking alongside your workmates. You are walking alongside your hobby groups. You are doing life with them. And sometimes the church, when it is boiled down to a meeting, when we think that at such a gathering, that should be enough for me to feel philia, you do not have philia. And you know that the problem is that we want to feel connected, don't we? We want to feel philia before we give and practice philia. The Bible teaches it completely differently. It says, be devoted. What, how is your devotion to people? Who are you walking alongside? And we'll talk about this as well in the coming weeks about friendships and who you're getting around because this is an extremely important concept. The Bible tells us to practice philia. This is a principle for our relationships and how we practice philia is actually being devoted to reaching out and to doing life. It's to philostorges. Philo means walk alongside Storges means to care as though the person is part of your family. When I walk alongside with you and I care for you as though you are family, I cultivate philia. What would the church community look like? What would your life look like if you were intentional about who you philo storges in philia? 
What would your life look like? What would your friendship circles look like if you were intentional about who you philostorges yourself around? Because I think that is something that we have lost sight of in this culture of individualism. As I mentioned, a theologian says that philia is hard because it's hard work. Philia is hard work. You lose philia the moment you are disconnected. But I do need to move on. Finally, agape. And agape is a word that I think if you've been around church circles long enough, you've heard about this word. And in Christianity, it is the standard of love. It's such an amazing, beautiful standard of love. Jesus taught us in John 13, 34 to 35, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Every single time the word love appears is some form of agape. And so what I want to point out is that Jesus doesn't tell us to love one another in isolation. He says, you love one another as I have loved you. And that's why we talk about love as uh, agape, as the standard of love, because it's the kind of love that God has given to us. And what Jesus teaches us is that by our agape for each other shall other people know that we are following in the footsteps of Jesus. Agape becomes not just the standard that we're reaching out to, it's the standard by which other people will judge us and know us for our lifestyle. And when we talk about the principles that we are meant to live by, it's very clear. Jesus teaches us we need to agape. The problem with agape this is where I'm reaching more into my interpretation. So think about this for yourself. If I am to follow Christ's example for agape, and if Christ's actions are the ultimate form of agape, it is impossible. We can't sometimes talk about agape as unconditional love, which is, you know, something really beautiful uh, as it is. But... I don't know if human beings can actually attain to that. When I was studying psychology a number of years ago, one of the things that was quite interesting was that where we covered the concept of altruism, which is this unconditional giving to someone else, uh, they, they found that people that practiced altruism, that they gave sacrificially, actually got a psychological boost. They actually became stronger in their emotions, in their mind, in their resilience. There was all of these benefits for altruism. And so there's a whole camp of people that say altruism is impossible for human beings because there's always a kickback. My generosity always gives me a kickback. Whereas when Christ practiced his form of altruism, he gave his life for us and there was no kickback. He did not get anything in return. He's like, I'll die on the cross and it will make me feel good. Christ doesn't need to die on the cross for him to feel better about himself. He's the ultimate form already. In fact, I want to put this forward to you. As much as I can sacrifice for Beck, it is not as though I am the creator and she's my creation and I'm sacrificing on her behalf. We are peers. We are on the same level. What God did for us is that the creator of the heavens and the earth the creator of you subjected himself, came down to be like you, to suffer for you. 
So the only way we can practice agape is for us to create another life form and then to die for that life form. That's impossible. And so when people put out this, you need to agape, you need unconditional love, I have sat down with people that say, I don't believe in unconditional love except from God. And I sat down with them and I was wrecking my brain, but the Bible tells us to agape. The Bible tells us that's the ultimate form. And I can see this person disillusioned with the community, disillusioned with people. And they're, they're telling me, Nate, unconditional love cannot happen. So why not we reach for something else? And as I was thinking about this, as I was preparing for today, I've come up with a bit of a system that I think makes sense to me. I think that as Christians, we need to remember and to receive God's agape. It is a standard that we cannot move. That is what true unconditional love looks like. We do not move agape. But instead of trying to reach an impossible standard and judge ourselves according to the unconditional standard, the Bible teaches us to practice philia and storge. So we attempt, we hold as a standard agape, but we practice philia and storge. Can I just say that even within married couples, eros is not enough. Even within a married diet, two people, you still need philia and you still need storge. All the different kinds of love is required between two people. Eros is just the icing on the cake, if you will. It is not that important. It's beautiful. It needs to be protected. It is to be honored. It represents the kind of love that we can have with Christ. But in our practice, Christ tells us, the Bible tells us to look for philia and storge. When we hold as a standard and when we receive from Christ agape, we must practice walking alongside one another and caring for one another in a way that is like a mother to a child. In other words, philia is the practical way that we should practice love. Philia is the principle that is most actionable for us. It shouldn't be the most overlooked. It should be the most deliberate and that is what we need to understand. Who are you walking alongside? Stop asking if someone else will walk alongside you. You know my best friends that I've had in my life? When I first met them, I disliked every single one of them. I didn't want to do life with them. I was like, you guys are annoying. I don't want you in my life. But the more I did life with them, the more I saw the character and the love and the devotion that they had, and especially when I was a terrible human being, their love and their devotion to me demonstrated philostorges, demonstrated philia, and made me a better person. It's not about feeling, it's not about how you're going, and yes, you need to receive, we'll talk about that later, but philia should be the most actionable principle of love in our lives. I do need to go on to the second principle. I do feel like it flows in. I, don't, I have five minutes to describe this, so I do apologize. And this second principle, as I mentioned, is mutual submission. 
And this is found in particular in the book of Ephesians. Now, the book of Ephesians is really interesting. The first three chapters are devoted to showing us God's love for us and His life towards us. So the first half, the first three chapters of Ephesians could be described as God's agape to us. And then the final three chapters are about our lives in the light of God's agape. So if you read Ephesians, you need to make sure you hold it all together. God loved us and this is how we live because of God's love for us. Okay? And now in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 to 2, this is what Paul says. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The words love there are agape. This God loves us. We walk in the way of agape is the standard. And then he goes on to describe what we need to do. And then we get to the second half of that chapter and we have a very important verse. Ephesians 5.21 is known as a hinge verse. If you, you know what a hinge is? A hinge is where everything turns on. If you have the hinge in the wrong position, everything does not work properly. And so Ephesians 5.21 is a hinge verse, and we need to read everything that follows in the light of Ephesians 5.21. What follows from Ephesians 5.21 is Ephesians 5.22, for those who need to follow, and Ephesians 5.22 all the way into half of chapter 6. Paul talks about four different kinds of relationships. He talks about the wife, the husband, kids, and then slaves. And people keep getting these things wrong because they forget about the hinge verse and they read those things as though Paul is teaching you what a wife should do, what a husband should do, what kids should do, and what slaves should do. Yes, Paul is talking about what these four people should do in the light of Ephesians 5.21. And so, is Paul teaching us that we should have slaves? Is Paul teaching us that slavery is okay? No, Paul's telling us this is how we behave as slaves in this current cultural context 2,000 years ago, based on Ephesians 5.21. So, oh, it's already up there. There you go. Ephesians 5.21, our hinge verse. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Why do wives submit to the headship of husbands? Because husbands were the head of the house back in those days. And so Paul is saying, since they already are made the heads in that culture, learn how to submit to them well. Why do husbands need to serve their wives? Because you as the head need to serve as Christ served, submitting to your wives. Why do you need to continue to obey your master as a slave? Because slavery is something that culturally hasn't shifted yet. And so if you are a slave, learn how to submit to your master out of reverence for Christ. The whole point that Paul was making in Ephesians chapter 5 is live in a way that will demonstrate Christ to other people. He's not telling you how, whether slavery is okay, whether the patriarchy is okay. Don't listen to any of those false understandings of the Bible. The hinge verse is the most important, which teaches us mutual submission. The word mutual means me to you, you to me. Both of us need to practice submission. What does submission mean? Submission means being subject to, to come under. And why this is so important is because no one thinks about who I am subjecting myself to anymore in today's day. We think about who can I stand on? Who can I stand beside? But do we ever go, who am I serving? Who am I coming under in order to raise up? 
mutual submission. And listen to this, I'm not just saying that us as Christians go everywhere into this world and anyone that you see in the, in, in, around, you just simply just subject yourself to whatever they want. Give me your coat, give me your clothes, go walk naked into the park. No! Mutual submission, there are boundaries to this, which coincidentally, plug for next week, we're going to talk about boundaries next week. But this week, we're going to talk about mutual submission. We need to understand that for us to practice agape and philia and storge, mutual submission. I want to unpack this a little bit more because we often think about this in a power kind of a relationship. Subjecting, I'm giving you power. But the actual word of submission also includes listening to someone else's advice, listening to someone else's wisdom. I am serving your best and I'm also getting your best. I am learning how to listen to you. You know how many people I talk to and they ask for my advice and they say, okay, I'll consider it. And I'm like, why did you talk to me if you didn't even give a flip about what I said? You're not willing to submit to my advice. You just wanted to hope that I would say what you want to hear so you can continue to live out your own life. In our Christian circles, wisdom needs to be passed from person to person through mutual submission. I seek your best, you seek my best. I will get your best and you will get my best. That is what mutual submission is all about. In a marriage, mutually submit to each other. I'm not, I am the head. No, there's a feminist world that we live in now. So I need equal rights and equal pay. You need to look after the child. No, we need to look after each other and we need to seek each other's best. I need to put your interest in front of mine. But when I also need wisdom, when I need advice, I go to someone that I can submit myself to. So many of us have really terrible failure because we look for people that have got no wisdom and we ask for their wisdom. Our relationships are based on love and mutual submission. Whether you are practicing this deliberately or just subconsciously and by default, default, you're, you're practicing these things. You're walking alongside people You are submitting to what they are saying and what they are doing. That's why we have boundaries in our relationship. But at the first point, how are you loving people? Who are you submitting to? Whose advice have you been listening to? You know, as I was thinking about this, we don't submit to Christ as a one-way street. You know, Christ already submitted himself to us. You've got your communion with you right now. If we can get the band up. If God mutually submits with us, how much more do we need to do this? But the reason why so many of us don't practice mutual submission is because we don't know if other people are going to live for my best. We don't trust people. We are worried about people. And so the antidote to this is that we understand that Christ submitted himself to me. How did Christ do that? 
Well, he came to earth as human. He laid aside his deity. He put aside his royalty. He put aside his creatorship to serve us. He says the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve. He submitted. He obediently submitted himself to the cross so that he could demonstrate agape love. I'm not saying that Christ still stays submitted to us and we can snap our fingers and he's genie God who does whatever we want. But I'm trying to focus on the point here that Christ already submitted to us to give us a new life. And so the question here is, how am I submitting to his lordship? How am I submitting to his salvation? How am I submitting to all that he has done for me? And so as you close your eyes, prepare this communion, get the biscuit or the wafer out. I want you to consider, to think about God's agape love, unconditional, reckless in the sense that he paid no attention to his own life so that we could have life and life abundantly. As you take that wafer this morning, what it symbolizes is that you're eating of the body that was broken on your behalf, subjected to you that you might have life. As you take up the cup this morning, you're drinking of the blood that was shed on the cross so that you might have life in return. Before we get to live love and mutual submission out, we receive God's agape love. So why don't you take up that this morning? We're about to finish our gathering this morning. I'm going to close in prayer in just a moment. Our time is up. But I want you to just ensure that you're not leaving this space, leaving this moment, if you feel like God's doing something in your heart. Because before we practice love, before we go from here, before we do anything else, the Bible keeps telling us, love as I have loved you. Submit as I have submitted to you. Live as I have lived for you. And so God, I pray over our church. I pray that we will have your love, your life as our example and that we will live it out in every sphere of our life. We thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Why don't we all stand? As the close of our gathering, the band will just lead us in one more song and then you can head to the back for morning tea. But if you want to stand, if you want to pray for anything, you can come on forward and we'll be here to pray with you as well. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Live Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.